Uh, This morning's reading comes from Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, through to the end of uh, chapter 2. You can find this on page 1501 in your black Bibles. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and she gave him the name Jesus. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people of Israel. When Herod Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared, he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king... They went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realised that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. 
So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Achelius was reigning in Judah in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. Thank you, Simon. Isn't it great to have some rain outside and be able to see it through the window behind me? I think one of the things that many of us would value about Australia is that it's a place where kind of anyone can make a go of it, isn't it? We don't really have a firmly established class system in Australia and there are few clubs or societies which I think make a real difference in terms of your employment prospects or your quality of life. Your family history won't make or break you in Australia, will it? It might be because so many of us are descended somewhere from convicts. Perhaps that's why our culture is like that. But being Australian means that we won't necessarily follow in our parents' footsteps either, doesn't it? So my dad is a doctor, and I can equally be a church pastor or an engineer, or I could have been a plumber or a builder or a lawyer... Family ancestry doesn't really play much of a role in that. In some sense, you could say family ancestry for us in Australia is really just a curiosity. I wonder what my parents' parents did for a job. And so when we see a long list of names, like we see at the start of Matthew's Gospel, our natural inclination probably is to just skip over them. If you've got your Bibles there, I'd love you to open them to... Matthew chapter 1, and you'll see at the start this long list of names. Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon. We normally just skim or skip over these words. In fact, today I asked Simon to start our reading from verse 18, rather than from verse 1, partly because the names are so hard to pronounce, but also uh, because we just often do this, don't we? We skip over these words, these names. Sure, in Australia there are still elements or aspects of our family genetics or our family history that play a small part in determining who we are or what it is that we do. But in most cases, our family history plays only a minor role. There are always exceptions to that rule though, aren't there? Particularly when it comes to our national game football there are some exceptions to the rule in football we have this thing called the father-son rule now for those of you who know me I'm no expert really in football if you want to know more about the details of the father-son rule uh, perhaps talk to Simon or someone who really knows about football but from what I understand the long and the short of this rule is that sons and possibly daughters as well are more likely to play football for the clubs that their fathers played in Now, we see this in uh, the Ablett family with their two Garys. The Ablett family, I understand, are one of the most skilled football families in Australia. And so, when Gary Ablett 
Jr. and Nathan Ablett fronted up to be recruited into the national football team, they were always going to go to play for Geelong, their father's team. You can just kind of imagine the conversation going on at Geelong at the time where these guys were looking to be recruited. His dad was Gary and his uncle was Kevin and Jeff Ablett. Surely this guy has got what it takes. He's got the right pedigree. And so although in Australia we're kind of largely able to escape the constraints of our family heritage, I think to some extent we probably still do understand how genealogy might be important. We see it in the father-son football rule. But in most cases it doesn't play much of a role in our culture. But in Jesus' time and in Jesus' culture, it was very different. They loved their genealogies back then. They really did. And Matthew, the author of this gospel that we're reading today and we've been working through for the last month or so, is writing to a Jewish audience in a time about 2,000 years ago. And in that culture and at that time, genealogies were very important. It means more for them than it does for us today. What Matthew's doing is he's trying to set the credentials for the main character in his gospel, Jesus Christ. And Matthew recalls a, a whole lot of people, but primarily he really just wants to connect Jesus to two people, Abraham and David. And so Matthew starts his gospel on page 1,500 of your Bibles, if you'd like to look there, with these words. He says, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David and the son of Abraham. See, Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is a descendant of both these two men. And the other names in the genealogy, in a sense, they're kind of just fillers to connect the family tree. It's one way of thinking about it. Now, of course, the genealogy of Jesus that includes Abraham and David has nothing to do with their ability to kick a football, but it is more than simply a list of names. I like the way that uh, one of the commentators, Grant Osborne, puts it in his commentary on Matthew. He says that by connecting Jesus to Abraham, Matthew is telling us that the Messiah is here. And by connecting Jesus to David, we see that God's kingdom has come. Let me show you how Osborne gets there. Firstly, spend a little bit of time thinking about Abraham. You might remember that Abraham is the father of Israel, called out of the land of Ur. Abraham left everything he had to follow God. And right back in Genesis chapter 12, God makes some promises to Abraham. If you want to have a look at those promises with me, you can turn back to Genesis chapter 12 on page 17 of your Bibles. Let me just read to you uh, two verses starting at verse 2 of chapter 12 of Genesis. God says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God makes a promise to Abraham, as he was known back then, 
that includes all people on the earth being blessed through him. And the storyline of the Bible is that the blessings of all people on the earth, they come through a person that is Abraham's descendant. Matthew is showing us that this Messiah, this deliverer, this blessing is Jesus. He is the one who will bring the blessings to all people. And not only will all people be blessed through Jesus, but the birth of Jesus, in that birth, we see God's true king being born. A king whose reign is eternal. See, that's the promise that God made to King David. To see that, I'd love you to flick forward in your Bibles now to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13. It's on page 478 if you're interested in reading along in your Bibles. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13 on page 478. This is God speaking through the prophet Nathan to David. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Forever. So can you see right at the start of Matthew's gospel, two ideas being set up that Matthew will continue to explore throughout the rest of his gospel. Jesus is the Messiah, the promised deliverer, and he's God's true king, the one whose kingdom will endure forever. I reckon Matthew's doing one other thing in his genealogy. It's another thing that he'll continue to explore throughout the rest of his gospel also. And that is that his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, is open for all. It's not just for the Jews, but for Gentiles also. And what's more, the kingdom is not just for those who are squeaky clean and righteous on their own. No, the kingdom is open for all who repent and trust in Jesus. I think we see that particularly in the inclusion of the women that are listed in the genealogy that Matthew describes. Take a moment now just to skim down through the list of names in that genealogy and see if you can pick out the women. Flick down through chapter 1 of Matthew and see if you can pick out the women in the story. You might see Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Uriah's wife. Each of these women have a, a big backstory that we haven't got time with to detail, de- go into in detail now. But in two weeks' time, we're starting a series together as a church looking at the book of Ruth, and we will then explore her in some detail. But here's the thing. If you know the backstory to these women then you'd know that their inclusion in a genealogy about Jesus is a little unusual. See, these women are either, well, part of their story is that they're kind of morally challenged or they're they're just simply not part of Israel. These women were either prostitutes or adulterers or they come from a foreign land altogether. 
And yet Matthew includes them in this carefully crafted genealogy. Why is he doing that? He didn't have to include them. Why is he doing that? Here's what I think Matthew's doing. He's saying the kingdom of God is not just for Abraham and the Davids and the Solomons of this world. The kingdom of heaven is open to all who acknowledge the lordship of that king. Lots of things going on in this genealogy, isn't there? So at first glance, it might look a little bit boring, but I think in these opening verses of Matthew, a foundation is being laid which he will build his gospel on. Jesus, he says, is related to Abraham. He's the fulfillment of the blessings that were promised. Jesus is related to David. He is the king, the true king, the king that will rule forever. And thirdly, the kingdom that Jesus is the king of is open to all, not just to those in the Jewish nation. These are some of the big themes that we'll see over and over again in Matthew's gospel. And they start right here in the opening few verses. Matthew's saying, I think, are you ready for the greatest story ever told about the greatest king? It's a life-changing story. It's a life-giving story, he says, because it's about a man who will save his people from their sins. I think that's the big part of the idea in the next part of chapter 1. Let me read to you from verse 21 of chapter 1. Here, Joseph has learned that the woman he was betrothed to was pregnant and that the baby wasn't his. And thinking to divorce her quietly, an angel appears to Joseph in a dream. And the angel says this, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. The commentaries tell us that the name Jesus isn't actually a particularly unusual name. Joshua is another way that you could translate the name into the English language. It simply means God saves. But here the angel is kind of loading up the meaning of the name. Here is a very special Joshua. He will save his people from their sins. Having just come through Easter and having looked at the last few chapters of Matthew's Gospel, we know very well, don't we, what it took for Jesus to do this. His blood was poured out. He hung on the cross and yet he rose victorious. Having read the final chapter of Matthew last week together as a church, you might also remember that Jesus promises to be with us to the end of the age and Here we see Matthew telling us about the virgin birth and the story we know so well from Christmas time. But also another name connected with Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. You see, in Jesus, God takes on human fleshy form and walks with us. He really is God with us. You've seen in our kids' talk today, we usually look at Matthew 
1 and 2 during the Christmas time in the year. One aspect of the Christmas story that I'm sure many of you are familiar with are the three wise men that we talk about at Christmas time. And we meet them as not actually three here, but we meet them in the first part of chapter 2 as the Magi who come from the East. Have you ever wondered why Matthew includes the story about these Magi in his birth narrative? And he could have talked about the weather if he wanted to. He could have told us about the census and Joseph and Mary's journey on a donkey or about Jesus being born in a stable, but he doesn't. Instead, he tells us about Magi traveling from the east. Why would he do that? What's the point of the Magi in the story, do you think? Take a moment, just jot your answer down on your leaflet if you want to. There's a, uh, an outline of where we're going this morning. You might like to just find a little bit of space. What is the point of the Magi in the story? Why has Matthew included them? What do the wise men help us to see? Here's how I think I'd answer that question. The wise men help us to see that theme that is now so common for us, that Jesus is the real king. The wise men help us to see that Jesus is the true and eternal king. Now, King Radar should kind of already be ready to go bing at the moment, having seen the connections that Matthew draws between King David and Jesus in the genealogy. But now in chapter 2, Matthew goes all out, I think, in showing us that Jesus is the true king, the promised king of the Jews. And he does that, I think, by setting up King Jesus against King Herod. Let me read to you from the start of chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and they asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Herod is described by Matthew as King Herod. At the time, Israel was under Roman rule and although Herod ruled over Israel, he was still answerable to Rome. I wonder, as Simon read these verses to us before, did you form a a mental picture of what King Herod was like? As I read these verses, I think he doesn't seem like the sort of bloke that you'd want to have dinner with, does he? He's not kind of on your list of preferred dinner guests. Afraid that he might be usurped by Jesus, he orders the killing of all the boys under two years of age. He's not a pleasant sort of bloke, is he? I learned this week in some of my reading on this passage that the historian, the Jewish historian Josephus, wrote quite a bit about King Herod. Josephus tells us more about the character of King Herod. Let me paraphrase what Josephus says, but it's something like this. He's talking about King Herod at the end of his days. As he lay on his deathbed, Herod knew that he was not well liked, and so he lamented that his death was unlikely to produce widespread mourning among the people. So he gave orders for a large number of soldiers to be gathered up and then executed when he died. 
That way, Herod reasoned, at the time of his death, there would be a lot of mourning. It'd be for the soldiers, not for him, but that didn't really seem to bother him. That's the sort of man that King Herod was. And through the Magi, Matthew sets him up against King Jesus. This is what King Jesus says of himself in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. The Son of Man, that's Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The puppet king, Herod, wanted many others killed at the time of his death so that there'd be widespread mourning. Jesus says of his death that it was one of service and paid a ransom price. His death was for our sake, to pay the sin penalty that we deserve. Such a contrast, isn't there, between God's true king and King Herod. I think it's intentional. I think that's what Matthew wants us to see. And as you notice that this true king is recognized as such by the Magi, even though they come from afar, they're not Jewish, yet they recognize God's true king. They travel from afar, wanting to come and worship the true king. We've seen this a lot in Matthew's Gospel already, haven't we? The nation of Israel, those who are supposed to be God's special and chosen people, they don't seem to be able to recognize King Jesus for who he is. And yet those from afar so often seem to be able to do this. So the Roman centurion looks at Jesus on the cross as he dies and says, surely this man was the Son of God. While the religious leaders plot for a way to explain Jesus' disappearance from the tomb. Those from afar recognize him. This morning, do you recognize Jesus as the true king? At first glance in the birth story of the true king, he might be hard to spot, mightn't he? Being born as a baby, coming into the world in such humble circumstances. But if these words in Matthew are true, and I'm convinced that they are, then the further you dig into them, the more that you will see that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the eternal King, the one who will save his people from their sins. The more you read on in this story, the more you'll see what sort of a man Jesus was. He's nothing like Herod. Instead, he's full of wisdom and compassion and grace and mercy and love. He doesn't seek the death of others. Rather, he gives up his own life. That's what God's true king is like. Jesus comes into this world as God. That's why he's called Emmanuel, God with us. He came into this world in humble circumstances, yet he is God's one true king. And Matthew, I think, is asking us as readers, do you know this true king? He's crafting a gospel for us to read, the good news about this king, so that we won't just ignore Jesus, 
so that we won't just overlook him and continue living our lives as if he never existed. Matthew wants us to be wise like the Magi who he describes as wise. He wants us to stop what we're doing, perhaps change direction if necessary, so that we will worship King Jesus. What will you bring to King Jesus? The Magi come with gold and frankincense and myrrh. They are the sort of gifts that you bring to a king. Over the page, and next week we'll see this, Jesus calling his disciples, this is what he asks of them. He says, come, follow me. I will send you out to make more disciples. Or actually, he says, I will send you out to fish for people. But that's what he means. Jesus as a king asks that we would follow him, that we'd worship him, that we'd love him and honour him and obey him as a king. The Apostle Paul in his letter to the Romans has some great words of advice when it comes to how we're to worship. He says that our true and proper worship is that we'd offer our lives to God. Not that we'd conform to this world, no, but that we would be shaped instead by the will of God. Let me finish this morning by just reading to you from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 2. You don't need to turn there, I just would like you to listen to these words. I hope today you've seen a glimpse of God's grace. I hope you've seen something of God's true King. And can I encourage you to respond to God's true King by listening and following these words of Paul? Paul says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. That's what true worship looks like. That's what the true king demands. Let me pray that we would be able to do that in his strength. Father God, you sent your son Jesus into this world that we could know what you were like. You sent your son in humble circumstances. And yet the reality is that he is the one true and eternal king. You sent your son in order that we might have our sins forgiven that there might be a way for us to be united with you. Father, we pray that you would help us to be a people who see Jesus for who he really is, the son of Abraham and David, the Messiah and the King who reigns forever. Help us to be a people who respond to that King like the wise Magi, rather than like the Jewish leaders. We ask that through the gift of your Spirit you would kindle us kindling us a great sense of love and appreciation for a king who would come not taking away life, but giving his own as our ransom. King Jesus, we praise you for your majesty, for your rule and for your glory. And please fill us today with a willingness to live lives that are marked by obedience to you. May that be a way that we worship you and give you praise and glory. Amen.